it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. Today, a report card on crime in America. The surge in everything from retail theft to homicides. City streets taken over by scores of addicts. Questions about why so many accused of violent crimes are so quickly out of jail and back in the community. And the efforts by fed-up citizens across the country. But first to our top story, a new milestone in Israel's war against Hamas in the Middle East. This is the second phase of the war, whose goals are clear. The destruction of Hamas's military and governmental capabilities and the return of the hostages home. Israeli tank columns move into Gaza while Israeli warplanes carry out heavy airstrikes. Meanwhile, the U.S. sends a message to Iran, striking munitions facilities in Syria earlier this week after a series of Iranian-backed militant attacks on U.S. forces in the region. If these attacks continue, then as the president said, we'll continue to respond. The Pentagon saying the move is to stop Iranian-backed militias from broadening the conflict in the Middle East. We'll discuss escalating tensions and the latest on the hostage negotiations with Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee Michael McCall. Then crime in America, driving away business, leaving the streets filled with addicts. You got tents, you have people shooting off. I mean, it's a horrible place. And destroying lives forever. They failed. The New York system failed her. This hour, we'll explore the impact of soft-on-crime prosecutors. They know that they're just going to get a slap on the wrist. Discuss the issues facing law enforcement across the country. And find out what some cities are doing to try to turn things around. We'll sit down with Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, who just made headlines by flipping his party affiliation in part because of what he says progressive policies are doing to America's cities. All right now on a special edition of Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. We will take you across the country for our Crime in America special today. But first, we want to get to the very latest on the situation in the Middle East. Israel has expanded its ground operations in Gaza over the last couple of days. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war will be long and difficult. The Israel Defense Forces says it has hit more than 450 military targets belonging to Hamas terrorists over the past day. Israel's allies have been urging the country to hold back as negotiations over the hostages being held in Gaza. That continues. In a moment, we will bring in House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall. But first, let's turn to Trey Yankst, live at the Israel-Gaza border with the very latest on the next stage of Israel's war. Hello, Trey. Shannon, good morning. As we speak, Israeli forces are operating inside the Gaza Strip. Friday evening, the Israelis launched an expanded raid into the enclave for what is expected to be months of battle. We do know the Israeli military says fighter jets overnight hit more than 450 targets inside the Strip. Right now, they're using the Air Force and artillery units along the ground to hammer the northern and eastern part of Gaza. I do want to show you behind me, you can see the Israelis operating inside Gaza. First, in the distance behind, a layer of dust as the APCs move along the border and the outgoing thud of artillery pierces the air. You'll see there an Israeli tank. That tank has been going back and forth inside Gaza. Along the skyline, you'll see the massive amount of destruction to the eastern side of the Strip. 
Some of those clouds of smoke are from airstrikes that took place just moments ago. The southern front remains active, and I do want to show you what it was like last night as those airstrikes targeted the northern part of Gaza. Take a look. One after another, the Israelis continue to hammer the eastern side of the Gaza Strip. It looks like they're trying to hit the tunnel system. The strikes are so strong, they are shaking the ground here. And it's not just from the air, but also from the sea and from the land. Tank units and artillery units along the border turning the eastern side of Gaza to rubble. After two days of communication cuts to cellular networks and the Internet inside Gaza, we're starting to get more information and images out of the Strip. You can hear the roar of a fighter jet overhead. This drone video here shows the level of destruction in northern Gaza. Entire neighborhoods wiped from the map. More than two million Palestinian civilians with nowhere to go. They are being warned by the Israelis to move south immediately. There are reports that indicate Hamas, the group in control of Gaza, is hoarding both food and fuel inside. Overnight, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressing his nation and the world, saying this is Israel's second war of independence, adding, quote, we will win. Shannon. Trey, you mentioned what's been taken out, communications and other things within Gaza. Have you been able to communicate with folks inside? Yes, this morning I've been talking with Palestinian civilians inside the Gaza Strip. And I do just want to show you behind me here, as we are texting those civilians, the Israelis continue airstrikes against the northern and eastern side of Gaza. That one civilian that I talked with who is just south of Gaza City today asked one question, and it was a, a question that I think pierces the minds of so many Palestinians. He said, the question now is why we will continue our life. So many Palestinians in desperate need of medical aid and supplies. And at this point in the war, that aid is simply not making it into Gaza. Shannon. All right. Trey Yanks reporting from Israel live for us around the clock. Trey, thank you to you and your crew. All right. Joining us now, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair, Texas Republican Michael McCall. Great to have you back with us. Mr. Hey, Shannon, thanks for having me. Let's start with Iran. Overnight, their president said this on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now. He says Zionist regime's crimes have crossed the red lines, which may force everyone to take action. Washington asks us not to do anything, but they keep giving widespread to Israel. And he goes on from there. This after the Defense Department says there have been 20 attacks on U.S. troops in that region by Iranian proxies. You have the Iranian foreign minister standing up at the U.N. here, basically threatening the United States on U.S. soil. What do we do about Iran? Well, he talks about you know putting the United States on fire if this happens. You know, this, this is really started by Iran, really by their proxies. Hamas is a proxy of Iran, Hezbollah. We don't want Hezbollah light up. They have 100,000 rockets they can fire in, overload the Iron Dome. And meanwhile, they've been also the militia groups in Iraq and Syria have been hitting our troops in Iraq and Syria. Finally, the administration is responding to this. Uh, also, they put aircraft carrier strike groups in the Mediterranean and Persian Gulf for deterrence to ensure that this does not escalate. But that's our biggest concern. Well, where are you on? We've talked about on this show that Senator Graham has said, listen, we should go after Iran's oil infrastructure. At least they should think that we will actually physically attack it if they continue to press some of these issues. I think, uh, you know, the sanctions. We have not enforced sanctions on Iranian oil. And so we've had about 30 to 60 billion dollars they've made money off of uh, by evading our sanctions. Uh, that goes straight into funding of terrorist organizations like Hamas, like Hezbollah. 
In addition, the $6 billion part of this hostage negotiation, uh, I'm going to mark up a bill next week uh, to sanction that money from ever going into Iran. There's no reason to put, put $6 billion mm-hmm. into the biggest uh, state sponsor of terror. Okay, there are a lot of other countries weighing in, um, and many of them, uh, we know that they're enemies. I mean, Iran clearly wants to destroy America, but we've got Turkey, and I want to put up some video of a massive pro-Palestinian demonstration there yesterday. The estimates are there were hundreds of thousands of people in the street. Turkey's president stood there, Erdogan, and said that Israel is an occupier. He said they are committing war crimes. He says Hamas is not a terrorist organization. This is a NATO ally of ours. What do you say to Turkey at this moment? A precarious NATO ally that wouldn't let uh, you know Sweden into NATO for a while. Hopefully they will now. I would I would tell them to, to stop stop this. Historically, look, this is part of the Ottoman Empire. It goes way back to Turkish roots. I think Erdogan envisions himself as an Ottoman uh, Empire ruler, if you will. Uh, but yeah, the fact that he's supporting Hamas and is a NATO ally, and guess who else is? Mr. Putin. Hamas mm-hmm. visited him at the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing now the solidification of Russia, China, and Iran all together in this. They're all allies against the West and the United States. Well, and so China this week, they, they had an uh, incursion with one of our planes over the South China Sea that was within 10 feet of one of our planes. At the same time, their foreign minister is here negotiating now. Apparently, their reports are going to be a meeting between Presidents Xi and Biden in the next month or two. What is our message to China? What should the White House message be? Uh, de-escalate the tension. You know, when I was in Taiwan, they circled it with 10 battleships, mm-hmm. aircraft carriers, 70 fire jets. As you mentioned, our B-52 a fighter jet came 10 feet away from that. They in the Philippines, uh, the Chinese Coast Guard uh, banged into a Chinese uh, Philippine vessel, uh, almost sunk it. So the message is get something out of this meeting, for God's sakes. They always meet and it's good to talk. But we want lines of communication between our military and theirs, which we don't have right now. And I would also argue that uh, Mark Swyden from Texas, uh, he's been in China for 11 years as a hostage. He is very sick. He's a prisoner now on death row for a bogus drug charge. There's a lot to discuss there. Um, In the meantime, there's a supplemental bill now coming to um, the Hill from the White House, more than $100 billion for a number of things. There are a number of Republicans who are now stepping forward to say they don't want Israel thrown in with all of these other things, Ukraine and all the other stuff. Ted Cruz is leading the effort over um, with Senator Roger Marshall in the Senate. He says we should vote on Israel military assistance free and clear. It would pass overwhelmingly. And every other thing attached to it. Is the swamp at its very worst? New House Speaker Mike Johnson says he thinks there's consensus among most of the House GOP to also separate it out. What happens? Well, I was with the, the new speaker. I'm glad we have one now uh, at the Situation Room in the White House with uh, uh, Jake Sullivan talking about this very issue. I think what we want to do is, is really because the need is so urgent now in Israel is to start with Israel first and then deal with the other. As a separate measure. As a separate measure. We'll have that on the House floor this week. Okay. Uh, but we can't forget about the other adversaries linked to uh, Iran, which is causing the problems in Israel. And that is Russia and Ukraine and Europe and the threat also of China to the Pacific. And also, lastly, Shannon, most importantly for me and my uh, constituents, the border itself. Mm-hmm. We have to get this thing under control because it's way out of control.
Well, yeah, DHS is warning that terrorists and criminals and others will try to capitalize on what's happening in the world right now because of just how porous our border is. I mean, we talked before the show started about the record number of people attached to the you know, terror watch list that are showing up at our border, and those are just the ones we know about. Now, when I chaired Homeland Security, I always looked at those numbers. How many on the terror watch list? How many special interest aliens? We've had 200. It only took 19 hijackers, right? We need to stop the magnet, which is political asylum, go back to the policies that worked which was remain in Mexico, migrant protection protocols. I brought this up to the White House. It wouldn't cost a whole lot of money. It's just a change in policy where their claims are adjudicated outside the United States, not inside, because once they're inside the United States, like 7 million have been, they were released. Chairman, always good to see you. Thank you. You've got a lot to do on the Hill. Absolutely. And that includes this, um, deciding where to go next, because now you've got Mike Johnson elected as House Speaker. It came as a surprise to many. His views are considered to the right of many other lawmakers who were considered. The new speaker will face the tough task of negotiating with Democrats to reach a deal before government funding runs out in a couple of weeks. Let's bring in our Sunday group to talk about that and more. Federalist Editor-in-Chief Molly Hemingway and Richard Fowler, a contributing writer for Forbes. All right. Good to see you guys this morning. Let's start here. Um, the New York Times assessment of the new speaker as an election-denying extremist who believes that his allies have the right to nullify election results so that they can impose their vision of government and society on an unwilling public. Molly. What a balanced perspective from the New York Times there. Uh, the leader of the Democrats is, of course, Hakeem Jeffries, who denied the integrity of the 2016 election, falsely claiming that Trump was a traitor who had colluded with Russia to steal that. So we have issues in the Democrat Party where very few people have accepted elections, really going back for many elections. But it's interesting, this fourth candidate for um, for House Speaker was unanimously supported by his conference. And that doesn't mean that everybody shares his viewpoints, but it does mean that they view him as someone who's very good to work with and that they're very important issues. Democrats control the presidency. Democrats control the Senate. Democrats also control a lot of institutions like our, most of our media and college environments. And so this is just one area where that other half of the country can fight back on some of what's been happening with the Democrat agenda. So to the point of everything that needs to get done, the Washington Post has this piece saying the government's barely three weeks away from shutting down for lack of funding. You need money for Ukraine forces against Russian invaders, um, still more for Israel after the Hamas attacks. Then they end with this, but it is questionable whether and how well any of this can happen with Johnson holding a tenuous grip on a GOP majority that remains as dysfunctional as it was at the outset of this debacle. So, Richard, I mean, they did enough to to get a speaker done, but he's still going to be it's the hurting the cats. Well, I, I think that's the problem, right? Bravo for the Republican caucus for finally getting a speaker after a number of weeks. But what the chairman laid out just a couple of minutes ago is a quite a hefty agenda to try to get done in the world in which the makeup of the GOP caucus has not changed. Neither has the motion to vacate. So mm-hmm. the moment in which somebody does not like what this speaker has done, a one, one member of this caucus can say, I don't like it anymore, and we could be back to where we've started. Not to mention the fact that you have to get a border bill through, you have to get Israel funding through, you might have to get Ukraine funding through, on top of the fact that you still have to keep the government open. This remains a really big problem for this new, mem- for this new speaker. Not to mention... On top of everything else, this is somebody who's new to the job. He's never actually been a chairman of a caucus. He's actually, he doesn't have any fundraising experience. So what caucus members depend on the speaker to do is to raise money and to help them maintain their majority. This speaker has problems with all of that. Well, and it comes at the time that Gallup is now telling us their latest numbers that Congress has fallen to a 13% approval rating. I mean, Molly, people have lost their confidence in their ability to get any of these things done that we've talked about. Well, I think for the Republicans, the challenge will be 
less about, you know, people in D.C., they talk about fundraising. I think a lot of Americans are looking for leadership, and with leadership, they will give political support. They look at what's happening in D.C. They look at what the Biden administration has done, intentionally rejecting everything from the previous administration, Donald Trump's border policy, to his foreign policy. And they see a country that is completely in chaos at our southern border and, and with crime in our cities and with uh, inflation out of control. And they also see a world on fire. And so I think Republicans, if they want to get support from American people, will focus on leadership and pushing back against some of this and a corrupt Biden administration with the weaponization of the Department of Justice as well. Well, and Gallup also had bad news for the president, saying this, that his job approval rating among Democrats has tumbled 11 percentage points in the past months to 75 percent. That's the worst reading of his presidency from his own party. And the drop has also pushed his overall approval rating down four points to 37 percent, which matches his personal low. Richard, not where you want to be in the middle of a re-election campaign. Listen, there's no question that the Biden, camp, the Biden White House is in some trouble right now. There's no question of some intra-party fighting. But where I disagree with Molly is that the Biden administration has extended a lot of Trump policies, including things that have that has upset his own party, including continuing continuation of the building of the border wall, which we now... Well, but, that, but that was a little bit of whiplash, because they were definitely against of that, course, but now, now it's back. And now he's building the border wall, right, which is something that he did not want to do, but now he's here building the border wall. What is working for the president in this moment. We are just about 12 months out from this election, and we're seeing this. This week, we found out that the GDP is up 2.4 percent. While inflation is not where the White House wants it to be, we're seeing inflation starting to decrease. We're also seeing consumer spending increase, and we're seeing wages increase. What the president has to hope for in this moment is that these numbers continue to trend in the right direction by the time he has to tell the American people to please go vote for me. And he has to also hope that the Republican caucus in the House stays in disarray and dysfunction, as well as the presidential campaign on the Republican side the same. Well, polling shows that the American people don't feel the relief economically yet, and they do give the edge by a pretty wide margin to Republicans when it comes to handling issues of the economy. So clearly that's going to be front and center on the campaign trail. Thank you both. Good to, Good see, to you, see, see you. All right. Up next, our special in-depth look at crime across America. We've got reporters everywhere all across the country to show you just how bad things have gotten to investigate the challenges our law enforcement officers are facing and the backlash against progressive prosecutors. Next. It's another ultimate. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Now to our special in-depth look at crime in America. Here in the nation's capital, district residents are facing the highest homicide rate in 20 years. More than 225 so far this year, up 34 percent from the same time last year. But dominating the nation's headlines this week, the shock of another mass shooting, this time by a lone gunman in Lewiston, Maine, on Wednesday. 18 people killed, ranging in age from 14 to 76, leaving behind a devastated community. After a two-day manhunt, the shooter was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot Friday night. Behind me here, the Capitol, where flags are flying at half-staff and at federal buildings across the country until sunset tomorrow in memory of those lost. Maine had been one of the few states in America with a low number of homicides, 29 in the entire state in 2022. Compare that with New York City, where there have been more than 315 murders since the beginning of this year. Meanwhile, three years into the 2020 progressive bail reform passed by New York State, a backlash is building from critics and victims of crimes. 
CB Cotton spoke to one family who says they've paid the ultimate price. What's going on? Jackie Bellini and her family were enjoying a night in at her Manhattan apartment when suspect Lanou Moore tried to force his way into her home. Police sources say Moore was often aggressive towards Jackie because of her barking dogs. Her daughter vividly remembers the night he tried to get into her mom's apartment. My mom came out with a broken arm and my boyfriend came out with blood coming out of his head. She and other loved ones speaking out, but hiding their identity. From then on, Jackie's brother says he knew the worst could happen. I knew it in my heart. Something was going to happen. I knew it. Because New York, there's no justice for nobody. On September 29th, Jackie was out walking her dog with a friend when all three were shot and killed. Gunned down by Lanou Moore, according to police. The system failed us. New York's system, which saw sweeping bail reform in 2020, eliminating cash bail and pretrial detention for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felony cases. The state's progressive lawmakers arguing no one should be behind bars while awaiting trial just because they can't pay bail. After the home break-in in April, Jackie had faith the criminal justice system would protect her. Moore was arrested and then arraigned on assault and burglary charges, a judge setting bail at $5,000 cash. He paid 10 percent, that was 500 and that's crazy. I feel like the judge failed. They gave him an opportunity to finish his job. There have been three amendments to the state's bail law since 2020. The most recent change came this year from New York Governor Kathy Hochul after striking a deal to give judges more leeway when setting bail to get a defendant to return to court. But how dangerous someone may be to the community is not up for consideration. This is crazy. Nobody's safe. Several of the state's progressive lawmakers who've advocated for bail reform did not respond to our request for comment. Jackie's family knows how they feel. The judge could have saved a life. They need to change it immediately because people like that are not meant to be let out. They failed. New York's system failed her. In New York, CB Cotton, Fox News. Suspect Lanou Moore was arrested by the U.S. Marshals in New York City this week and is now facing murder charges. Well, joining me now to talk about what happens after suspects are arrested, former prosecutor Kelly Stimson, also the author of Rogue Prosecutors, and former D.C. police detective and defense attorney Ted Williams. Great to have both of you with us this morning. This is one of those issues that people become so frustrated about. We know there's tension here in D.C. between prosecutors and police officers, sometimes not on the same page about things. But let me read you something from the Prison Policy Initiative, who says it's wrong to blame progressive policies. They say this, claims that recent changes in crime were the result of reforms such as bail reform, changes to police budgets, or electing, quote, progressive prosecutors are simply not supported by the evidence. Cully. They're wrong. It is supported by the evidence. Look, of the 30 cities with the highest murder rates in this country, 27 are run by Democrats, 14 have Soros bought and paid for rogue prosecutors, accounting for 68% of the homicides across this country. All of their policies, Shannon, of the 2,300 DAs in this country, 74 are Soros bought and paid for. All of their policies are pro-criminal and anti-victim. Crime has exploded in the cities with these Soros bought and paid for rogue prosecutors. This is a fact. And you're, you're, what you're referring to there is 
campaign donations or other groups that you say are connected that led us to where we are with some of these people being elected. Right. Um, okay, so, Ted, you've been on all sides of this. Yes. Let me ask you about here in D.C. There's this real frustration. Um, there's the headline from The Washington Post is, D.C. U.S. attorney declined to prosecute 67% of those arrested. And they quote a uh, retired federal homicide prosecutor in the district. She said this, I would get angry when I would see defendants in homicide cases in front of me who had previous gun possession charges that a prosecutor had previously dismissed. Some cases are going to be challenging, yes, but that's your job. Do your job. Don't just dismiss it because the evidence is not everything you want it to be or think it should be. You know, uh, it's without a doubt, uh, crime here in the District of Columbia, as well as throughout the country, is up. And it is because of progressive DAs around the country. The, the, the criminals are winning. Law-abiding citizens in this country don't stand a chance. And it seems that we are more concerned about the rights of the criminal than we are about the rights of law-abiding citizens. So something has to be done. But when you look at the District of Columbia, when you look at the fact that you cannot even drive your car without being worried about being carjacked, when you think about the homicides that have taken place here, and all we have to do is to cut our television on and look at the smash and grab and wonder what is the law doing to protect law-abiding citizens? We, we, we are at a crossroad where we're going to have to do something, Shannon, within the criminal justice system. Well, and a lot of, but a lot of people will point to recent reforms and say they're actually helpful. You know, the First Step program and others that they say people who go through these specific programs have a much lower rate of recidivism, and we should be supportive of those criminal justice reforms. Yeah, but the, the criminal justice system, Shannon, has been reforming itself across the country for decades. And it's the real progressives who created drug courts and domestic violence courts and family justice centers. And those are working. And that's the reason crime has been going down across this country for 30 years. But in 2016, it started spiking up again when you saw this rise of Soros bought and paid for rogue prosecutors. And so, yes, reform is good. But the reforms they talk about all inure to the benefit of the criminal. None inure to the benefit of the victims. And that's why in cities like Philadelphia, where you have Larry Krasner, George Gascon in L.A. and other places like that, crimes exploded. But in cities like San Diego, you don't have a crime explosion because you have a real prosecutor. And that's the difference. You either enjoy your public safety privilege by voting for a D.A., Democrat or Republican, who's law and order, or you don't and you get a progressive and it becomes a hellscape. Well, and in some of these departments say it's, it's hard to keep and recruit new prosecutors because they're so overwhelmed by the decisions they have to make and the workload. Well, they are absolutely. Um, it, but when we look at the system, there is a problem within the system, and it is how poor people are treated in the system versus that of people who have money, especially when we look at cash bail, which is something that is out here and it's being debated. I don't look at it as uh, the sorrows uh, from that perspective because that's the political aspect. The criminal justice system should be independent of the political aspect, and we, sh we have to look at what is going on on the ground out here. Crime is not partisan, um, and victims uh, don't worry about party affiliation either. They just want justice. So, Colleen and Ted, thank you both for your work in this area and for being with us this morning. Thanks for having us. So, he's a big city mayor who recently made news for switching political parties. We're going to bring in Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson next, how his support for law enforcement helped motivate his decision to leave the Democrat Party, he says. And brazen armed robberies caught on camera. It's been a serious issue in cities across the country, including Chicago. We're going to take you there next to explain why some say that criminals are feeling so emboldened. 
All right, it's time for your first trivia question. What are the top four most common felony crimes in the U.S.? Get your answers together. We'll tell you when we come back. Knock, knock. Number one. Bro- to our Fox News Sunday special, the state of crime in America. Now the answer to our first question. What are the top four most common felony crimes in the U.S.? The answer, larceny and theft. That's shoplifting and pickpocketing included. Motor vehicle theft, burglary and aggravated assaults. Well, Illinois is now the first state to completely eliminate cash bail. The new policy went into effect last month after the state's Supreme Court rejected constitutional challenges to the law. That's despite some staggering statistics coming out of America's third largest city, Chicago. Vehicle theft up 68 percent compared to the same point last year. More than 23,000 reported incidents. Robberies up 25 percent from this point last year, more than 8,000 cases. Murders, good news there, down 11 percent, but still a staggering number, 490 people killed. On top of all of this, shocking video out earlier this year shows hundreds of teens trashing parts of the Windy City's iconic downtown. Garrett Tenney reports on the fallout. Crowds of teenagers taking over parts of downtown have faced relatively little consequences for jumping on cars, breaking windows, and stealing from stores. While crews of armed criminals are now targeting neighborhoods that have long been viewed as safe, carrying out strings of robberies and carjackings on unsuspecting victims. Police have only made a few arrests, and Cook County's progressive prosecutors have filed even fewer charges. That's how bold they've become, that they have no fear of anything, any accountability. Recently retired Chicago Police Lieutenant John Garrido says progressive policies at all levels of Chicago government, from Mayor Brandon Johnson to Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, are emboldening criminals and making it harder for cops to stop them. They know that they're just going to get a slap on the wrist. It's all political, and as long as politics are going to control law enforcement, I think that you're always going to have a problem with public safety. Demonizing children? Is wrong. While Mayor Johnson initially defended the team takeovers as silly decisions that young people make, his new top cop is promising that going forward, officers will be taking a much more aggressive approach. When you see that these individuals are endangering the lives of pedestrians and motorists, we can't have that. So now our response to that has to it has to have a level of aggression. What are we going to do in you know, the near term? Nothing. Richard Pallardy was on his way home from dinner with his brother last month. I was waiting for the light to turn. Uh, next thing I knew, I was uh, on the ground on my back. When he was jumped, beaten, and robbed by a group dressed in all black. Yeah, I definitely don't really feel safe in this city anymore. Mayor Brandon Johnson was elected on a plan to stop crime by addressing its root causes and investing in social programs in the city's poorest neighborhoods. But those are long-term solutions, and victims like Richard want more done to address the crime that's happening now. In Chicago, I'm Garrett Tenney, Fox News. Well, in another big city, Dallas, the mayor there, Eric Johnson, made headlines last month when he announced he would leave the Democratic Party and become a Republican. Johnson, a vocal supporter of law enforcement, is opposed to the defund the police movement and said the Democrat Party is looking to protect the criminal element over law-abiding citizens. Joining us now, Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson. Welcome to Fox News Sunday. Hey, good morning, Shannon. Thank you. 
I want to read a little bit of your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. You explained this change of party. You said, unfortunately, many of our cities are in disarray. Mayors and other local elected officials have failed to make public safety a priority or to exercise fiscal restraint. Most of these local leaders are proud Democrats who view cities as laboratories for liberalism. What's your argument about how that's impacting safety and crime? Well, sure. I believe it all starts at the top in a city. Um, the mayor, along with the police chief, have to set the tone and they have to set the policy uh, to keep residents of their city safe. It, it really, the bug does stop at, at, at the level of the mayor and the police chief. And what I've seen across the country, um, you know, too often, I think that Democrats primarily is what I'm talking about because that's who controls most of the major cities in this country. Uh, 75 of the top 100 cities in the country are run by Democrats. Um, the, the problem has become that Democrats were not willing, I think, to say that violent crime isn't a problem in their city and that it's a problem that they could actually do something about. Too many times uh, violent crime has been attributed to factors that are outside of the control of the mayor or the police chief. It's, it's societal. It's the education system. It's COVID. It's the economy. The reality is, is those things have always been present. We're always going to have economic ups and downs. We're always going to have challenges. Uh, our education system has always had its challenges. But what we haven't always had are the levels of homicides and other forms of violent crime that we're having right now. And I'll tell you what, the, in Dallas, I, I dug in pretty firmly against this whole idea of defunding the police. And I said, we're going to do things differently here. And we've had different results. You have touted the successes there in Dallas, but one of your fellow Dallas City Council members said this. A lot of these successes he's been talking about, like Dallas being one of the safest large cities in America, is because of policies passed by a majority Democrat City Council. So is, does he have a point there that this really isn't about party politics? Well, I'm so glad that my council came along eventually to agree uh, with me on some of those policies. We were all Democrats at the time. You know, I, I've switched parties uh, within the past uh, five weeks or so. But, uh, you know, the, the reality is, is this. Um, it, it was always a challenge. And, and, and there were reasons why we had uh, a lot of disagreements. and There was a lot of coverage for a long time about a lot of the the uh, the arguments and, and a lot of the debates that happened around uh, Dallas City Hall, around uh, how we need to respond to requests to defund our police. And there were amendments that were offered by that city council when the defund the police movement started that wanted to take money away from the police department, largely symbolically, um, for no real policy reason, and give it to non-law enforcement uses like solar panels and, and, and environmental um, issues that are important but have nothing to do with keeping a city safe in the middle of a crime spike. So uh, eventually, after I really went after them pretty hard, um, using the ch channels that were available to me locally, they changed their tune. But the reality is, is it's not to pick on the Dallas City Council. I'm talking about leadership at the top. I'm talking about the mayors and the police chiefs of the country um, really need to be um, treating the, the violent crime problem like it, uh, something that is within our control. And we need to hire, frankly, more police officers and do more of the things we're doing here in Dallas, like hotspot policing that's been working for us. Well, one of the things you're doing moving forward is is promoting the Republican Mayor's Association. That's something the Dallas Morning News in an editorial called a, quote, bad move. I want to give you a chance to respond to them. They say, why openly blast Democrats and risk antagonizing left-leaning colleagues on the council with whom Johnson has often partnered to pass the policies that he touts as successes? So you're just talking about that. They add Johnson is playing a game of us versus them that might gain him currency with national Republicans. But here in Dallas, 
He's only hurting his ability to be an effective leader. Your response? Well, it's funny. They didn't seem to have an issue when my predecessor spoke at the Democratic convention uh, during his first term as mayor, nor did they have a problem with me being a member of the Democratic Mayor's Association for the past five years. All of a sudden, I suppose it's, a, it's an issue because I, I'm a part of the Republican Mayor's Association, which I just started to try to help all the Republican mayors in the country uh, come together and to, for us to make sure that we are doing everything we can to have fiscally conservative leaders at the local level. We need that, and we need law and order. Um, we need people who are going to promote um, safety in our cities. And again, Democrats have controlled most of the major cities in this country for several decades, and at least 75 of the top 100, and it's, and it's a lot of the top 300 or so cities in the country that really have Democratic leadership. And you're seeing what you're seeing across the country in large part because law and order isn't taken seriously enough. It's interesting to me that ideas like defunding the police or not prosecuting crimes of a certain amount or all these other ideas that I think only embolden the criminal element in your city and demoralize your police department only come from one side of the political aisle. So it's, it's, it's not really honest for Democrats to say, well, we don't all embrace this. It's like, well, not everyone embraces anything in any party, but the ideas are only coming from your side of the aisle. And they're only no. taking root on your side of the aisle. And they're only being implemented by folks who have a D behind their name. So that's why I had to leave the Democratic Party. It doesn't represent my values at all when it comes to law and order. Well, these are important conversations communities have to be having regardless of party. Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, a dangerous drug cocktail is wreaking havoc on the streets of major cities and leading to critical health concerns for those who get addicted. We're going to introduce you to the first responders on the front lines of the Trank epidemic in Philly. And you've likely seen videos like this on social media, retail stores being targeted by scores of thieves. It's causing many business owners to close up shop and just leave places like San Francisco, leaving residents fewer options for food and prescriptions, vital needs. That leads us to our next quiz. What were the top five cities affected by organized retail crime last year? Is your city on the list? The answer when we come back. My name is John. To our Fox News Sunday special, The State of Crime in America. Now the answer to our quiz question. What were the top five cities affected by organized retail crime last year? The answer, according to the National Retail Federation, number one, Los Angeles. Number two, San Francisco and Oakland. Number three, Houston. Number four, New York City. And number five was Seattle. So San Francisco announced a crackdown on retail theft last month after receiving a $17 million grant from the state of California to combat the crimes. Social media videos have exposed the rampant stealing from businesses in the city, which has been trying to shake the negative image that crime has brought in recent years. Fox News senior correspondent Claudia Cowan reports from San Francisco on how the thefts are causing business owners to flee. Homelessness, open-air drug use, rampant car break-ins, and smash-and-grabs. Crime isn't just tarnishing San Francisco's image, it's driving people away. Small business owners like David Lee, who closed his taco shop after repeated robberies and unthinkable conditions on the streets. I don't want to walk by these people and be like, are they alive? Like, I don't even think of it. It's subconsciously, I just walk right by it, and that's not okay, right? After a while, that just takes a humongous, humongous toll on you. In closing shop... He joins scores of other downtown restaurants, Whole Foods, Starbucks, and big retailers like Nordstrom's, Target, and Banana Republic. 
And in a huge blow, after 20 years, Westfield announced it is pulling out from operating the city's largest mall. With one of the few remaining stores here, American Eagle, suing the mall's owners for ignoring problems like assaults and robberies and letting the place fall apart. The downward spiral due partly to years of progressive soft-on-crime leadership, partly to permanent work-from-home policies that have caused a 30% office vacancy rate, devastating the city's economy. We're seeing hotels not having the business travelers because there aren't as many office meetings. The city is not getting the same tax revenue from those businesses. Transit agencies don't have the customers. And so there's a lot of, of negative ripple effects. There are positive signs. Fleet Week and other large gatherings have been problem-free. IKEA has opened in a troubled part of town. And new management has pledged to revive that big downtown mall. But residents say until city leaders crack down on crime and clean up the streets, the exodus will continue, making it unlikely the city by the bay will regain its glittering reputation anytime soon. In San Francisco, Claudia Cowan, Fox News. And the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration issued an alert this year about a sharp increase in the trafficking of fentanyl mixed with an animal tranquilizer. The use of the addictive cocktail has become rampant in Philadelphia. Fox News correspondent Alexis McAdams is there where she followed the heroes, helping out on the streets trying to save lives. Philly's Kensington neighborhood is one of the largest open-air drug markets in the country. The new zombie drug leaving users knocked out, laying unconscious on the street. You got tents, you have people shooting off. I mean, it's a horrible place. It's like no big deal. Like, I don't even worry about the cops anymore because they don't care. According to the city, at least 90% of Philadelphia's illicit drug supply is laced with the animal tranquilizer xylazine, that deadly mix known on the street as Trank. This is more addictive than heroin or fentanyl. While the city's own crime stats show Kensington as one of the highest drug crime rates, very little seems to be happening to stop it, and it's just getting worse. Philadelphia's self-described progressive prosecutor, D.A. Larry Krasner, was impeached last year for dereliction of duty, but he remains in office after his impeachment trial was indefinitely postponed. Meanwhile, the zombie-like drug gaining national attention. Here we are. Republican candidate for president Vivek Ramaswamy says Kensington is an example of third world poverty right here in America. Oh, this is not the first world. Are you kidding me? To help out, Kensington Hospital offers wound care out in the streets. Trank leaves behind large wounds and severe sores like these, some leading to amputation. I don't want it to be tight. I just want it to be enough. Does that hurt? Well, yeah. Michelle Murphy Rosansky is a nurse practitioner treating thousands of users. Sorry, it's cold. It might sting. Without you and your team being here, would these people die? They're getting infections. They're getting abscesses. They're getting cellulitis. Some of them become septic, and if they get septic without treatment, they're going to die. And users tell me it's the withdrawal that makes it so hard to get clean. It's horrible. It really is. And I want, like, I want, I want to suck really bad with the, that withdrawal role. It'll pretty much make you do almost anything to make it go away. So Alexis reporting there for us in Philly. Now we're joined by our law enforcement panel to give us some real world perspective. Former Secret Service agent Chuck Marino, also the author of Terrorists on the Border and in Our Country. And by the mayor of Inglewood, California, James Butts. He's also a former police chief himself. Um, welcome to you both. 
Uh, I know that there are no simple explanations for all of this crime or for how to solve it either, but let's talk about police forces that have been decimated or having a hard time um, um, recruiting and retaining people. The International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, had some of these top issues. Um, difficulty recruiting qualified candidates, 78% of them reported that. Police departments across the country, too few candidates applying, 65%. And also the fact that they've had to eliminate certain services and units. 25% of departments, Mayor, tell us, I mean, these are very real-world problems for trying to stay up and protect people. Well, reality is this. It is difficult to recruit police officers. It's also reality that... Um, the current age candidates, they're not as interested in working overtime or accepting the dangers of police work. So that's not the issue. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that crime has fallen precipitously since 1991 and it hit 2019 and it had a spike. So what's the greatest correlation to uh, the increase in crime? It's uh, when you have uh, drug use and sales at high levels. It was crack cocaine in the 90s, and now it's fentanyl here in, uh, in our current um, time. So these other correlations just are not valid when it talks about why crime is going up. Uh, criminals don't look to see what the prosecution policies are in the jurisdiction where they're going to commit a crime because they know statistically there's very little chance that they're going to be arrested. So, Chuck, what about that? I mean, we, we have some of these cities that are now um, allowing drug usage and actually providing centers that will have, you know, nurses and people to revive you should you have an accidental overdose. I mean, that's been the answer in some cities, um, but residents around those areas say they think it's actually making things worse. I mean, what of, you know, the options that cities are trying, what is actually working? Well, yeah, not only have we seen law enforcement be villainized uh, overall, but we've seen an abandonment by the De Democratic Party of law and order. And therefore, we've lost all deterrence, whether you're talking about enforcing and prosecuting crimes in major cities or what we're seeing uh, occur down at the southwest border, increasing the flow of fentanyl. That's that's killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. And the problem here is Democrats grossly overreacted and catered to two radical groups, Black Lives Matters and Antifa, and turned their backs on the men and women of law enforcement across this country, all 800,000 of them. And because of that, we had mass resignations, mass retirements, there's poor recruiting, and there's police officers whose lives are being placed at greater risk and are now more tempted when it comes to doing their job. Well, Mayor, I want to give you a chance to respond to that because you've been both an elected official and you've been a police chief. You've been in uniform. What do you make of what you've heard a lot of on the show today, that this is about the policies of a particular party? That's absolutely ridiculous, uh, with all respect. I was a police chief in Santa Monica for 15 years, and that's a Democratic city. Crime dropped 64% while I was there. Uh, the last time it was that low was 1956. I came back to Inglewood. Our crime rate was high. But the greatest correlation that we saw to our crime rates uh, was employment figures. And unemployment was 17.5% when I came back to Inglewood. Because of all the developments and projects we brought with local hire provisions, it's dropped to 4.7% pre-pandemic. And along with it, we've had the lowest nine years of crime in the history of the city. So I'm talking about real-world correlations. Okay. It, it's not related to politics.
Well, um, clearly we'll have to have the two of you disagree, agree to disagree. I wish we had more time, but we got to leave it there. Um, please come back soon. Thank you both for your time. Up next, we're going to take you back to the Middle East for a breaking news update. It's another ultimate... We return now to our top story, the conflict in the Middle East. Israel has been trading fire in the north, releasing videos showing the IDF striking Hezbollah targets Saturday night. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Palcott is at the Israel-Lebanon border. Hello, Greg. Hey, Shannon. Yeah, as the ground war in Gaza by the Israeli military intensifies, clashes between Israel and the Iranian-backed, Lebanon-based Hezbollah militants grows as well. We can tell you firsthand there's been ferocious firing from Israeli tanks, artillery, drones, jet fighters into Lebanon at Hezbollah launch sites this weekend. After the militant groups sent missiles and rockets raining down on northern Israel, some intercepted, some landed with no casualties. So far, this is not a full-scale second front war, but the deadly skirmishes have tied up tens of thousands of Israeli troops. In the last three weeks, seven Israeli soldiers have been killed, as well as over 50 Hezbollah fighters, plus civilian casualties, prompting the evacuation of some 200,000 on both sides of the border. The proxy forces of Iran are hitting at the U.S. too. American military bases in Iraq and Syria have been targeted by Tehran-backed militias. 21 service members have been injured, triggering U.S. airstrikes against the militants. As Unrest built throughout the region. In the West Bank, too, three Palestinians were killed overnight by Israeli security forces. Hundreds have died. Finally, Shannon, the U.S. is now telling American citizens in Lebanon to leave, and two U.S. Navy aircraft carrier groups are now stationed in the nearby Mediterranean, just in case it gets worse up here. Back to you. Greg Palcott, thank you very much. That's it for today. We'll keep digging into these problems domestically and abroad. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.